Fashion Lab Africa. Real conversations, real fashion. Bonsoir, Fab Stars, and welcome to the Fashion Lab Show, the show that dissects the business behind fashion. My name is Lisa Gumba Regisford, your host, and thank you for tuning in once again. Now, on today's show, we are running an exclusive around fashion synergies with a specific focus on music and fashion, fashion and music, however way you want to break it down. There's definitely a significant relationship between the two, uh, and we've seen that. We know that it's very easy to understand. It's something that's been sort of around for a long time. Now, allow me to share some statistics before we move further, just to give you an idea of sort of what we are talking about. Now, you've got to know that according to the IFPI's 2019 Global Music Report, the global recorded music market grew from 9.7% in 2018, uh, the fourth consecutive year of growth. And then you look at figures released today in the music report show a total revenue of about 19.1 US billion dollars. Hmm. Now, fashion on the flip side has also grown at 5.5% annually, according to the McKinsey Global Fashion Index, uh, to now be worth an estimated 2.4 trillion dollars again ranking at the world's seventh seventh largest economy mm. anyway so we're going to touch base around uh, the continent and some sort of um, game changing platforms as well uh, according to how things are moving from a music perspective to a fashion perspective now moving along i just want to also just um break this down a bit further according to the Idleman on their article around how music influences fashion it's undeniable that fashion and music go hand in hand. Now, they basically emphasize on the fact that as soon as a trend is spotted within the music industry, be it a rise in urban sounds or a revival of electronic music, you can sort of guarantee that this will partially be followed by the same trend popping up in fashion some way or another. Uh, you think about it, we've seen it from the grunge era to the recent revival of grime, and the list goes on. So there's definitely um, interesting ways also that we can look at this Fusion, um, you think about this well-curated experiences of expert models, uh, sort of music, the venue, uh, the models, the ambience, the whatever it is, but the music always has a sort of big play when you think about fashion. And I think that when combined, uh, the result is definitely, or brings to life a really interesting perspective. And I think that that's, again, what's so cool about music fashion or fashion music or whatever you want to call it. Uh, you are tuned into the Fashion Lab. This is where we dissect the uh, this is where we dissect the business behind fashion. And uh, today, I think it's just time for I call it the tea break, um, where we're just going to take it easy and really open up on this conversation around fashion and music and music and fashion. And uh, before I get too deep, allow me to also introduce our contributors who bring this show to life. Uh, we are joined by Edgy Benson with his Echoes from New York. And lastly, we are joined by Zakia Bam for our beauty segment called Glamish. Uh, for those of you who know, I'm sure you've also, if you haven't had a chance, you should also be able to catch her blog on fashionlabafrica.com. So stay tuned with us, catch up with our wine style guide. This is where we touch base around everything stylish when it comes to wine and style, which sort of go hand in hand. And lastly, my favorite segment at the end of the show called Who Would You Want to Dress and Why? So definitely feel free to share with us your who's and your why's. Keep your tweets uh, flowing. We are on Fashion Lab AF on Twitter and we're on Fashion Lab Africa on Facebook and Instagram. And we definitely care about your insights or your, you know, your feedback. So we look forward to hearing from you. Now, I want to um, introduce a really special guest who's joining us um, on the show today. Um, you know, we've uh, had different um, conversations with different stakeholders within 
uh, the industry. And I just thought, gosh, what a perfect uh, candidate for this conversation today. Now, she's a self-proclaimed certified game changer with a distinct voice that remains unafraid to disturb the familiar. She also comes in wearing different hats, so she's definitely a powerful speaker. She's got a very commanding presence and a compelling story. She's also an author. Um, I know her from way back from a magazine called Lady Brill Magazine, which is a publication focused on celebrating brilliant women entrepreneurs and leaders globally. And she's also a contributing author to four books, two of which are distributed internationally, and also just completed her first music law book. Guys, if you think I have a lot in my basket, wait a minute. But I want to introduce this uh, really powerful voice uh, to the show. I'm really humbled and I'm also uh, really grateful to have you on the show. Welcome to the show, Miss Udwak. And thank, thank you. you so much for having me. I'm excited. Before we go into further conversation, who are you wearing and who made your clothes today? Oh my gosh. Um, well, I just uh, came from the gym and to create special time for you, my day starts a lot earlier. So I'm wearing one of my wonderful friends top, Stephanie Linus. She knows I love her top. She made it a long time ago when Lady Bro was um, uh, a sponsor for her very first movie that she produced, directed and premiered through the glass. So it's a tank top. Um, and and then I'm wearing regular, uh, one of the regular athletic brand shorts. Hmm, very nice. Well, yeah, um, just literally ran from the gym for you. <laughs> well, thank you very much. It's okay. It's, it is what it is, and it's good to know what we're wearing. And like I said, my biggest thing for those who are tuned in, the reason we actually ask this question is because we just want to be a bit more conscious uh, when it comes to what we're wearing. We want to sort of be also aware of who we are wearing, where the clothes were made, you know, how sustainable it is. How, you know, whatever it is, it makes you sort of ask yourself when every time we ask this question, it sort of brings or rings that bell and you find yourself double clicking and saying, hmm, actually, what am I wearing and what is this? So anyway, um, thank you uh, again for joining us. And I just want to go straight into the show and just start by unpacking a bit about your entrepreneurial journey and sort of what led you into where you are today. This is a lot of hats. Okay. So I, I think, what, in fact, what we can do, Ms. Uduak, let's start with Lady Brill. Let's just actually unpack Lady Brill, when it started, why, and what sort of role it's fulfilling within this uh, industry. No problem. For other people, though, it may seem like a lot of hats, but I'm able to really, truly describe myself in very simple ways. I'm a creator. I believe that there's a divine power that creates, and then we're sub-creators. So I'm a creator, blessed with talent of communication and law and law really is part of communication so i stay in my lane and what i've been able to do with the tools and talents of communication is create in the space of publishing which is what you're familiar with with lady burrow and other people are familiar with with africa music law and other people still are familiar with fashion entlaw.com that talks about fashion law related matters and then, of course, I create with being a legal advocate in a courtroom and outside of on law-related issues for the clients I represent in fashion and entertainment. And then the other one is being a media personality and head as well, reporting stories and pursuing the truth through uh, journalism. So those are the three products I've created, if you will, out of being a creator. Hmm. So is there something, do you find yourself or do you find it easy to, to sort of balance them or do you feel like they actually interact with each other that you actually don't really need a balance? It's basically everything interweaving from one to the other. 
How does I, this? I really think I, I really think so. I think that society has this to me. Well, first of all, I've always been somebody who doesn't necessarily go with the flow, but do what I believe uh, is consistent with me. So I march to the to the beat of my own drum. And so I say that because there's this misconception in society that you must only do one thing. It just never had made sense or has never made sense to me when I was younger and even as an adult. So. I think that when you stay in your lane, you're not just doing one thing because human beings are dynamic people. So the idea that Liz Ogumbor, who is a fashion designer, a musician, a wine connoisseur and entrepreneur should only pick one thing because society says, Liz, yes, you're doing too much, but you must only be a designer. You can't be a podcaster. You can't be in broadcasting. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> However, for reality of balancing things out, because you've got to know yourself inside out. If you have those communication talents and those business talent, then stay in your lane. Where you start running into problems is when you go outside the scope of your talent and then you're trying to juggle all kinds of different things. So this is very strategic, very calculated and very intentional with living my purpose. My purpose on earth is sent to be literally uh, using the tool of law and media to to make change. And so I've always, even when people when even when it wasn't cool to have so many diverse things going on, uh, always done that, always stayed in my lane. And I would add as a finality, now when we're looking at entrepreneurs and business and seeing the rise of entrepreneurship in Africa, we keep hearing experts now tell us, hey, you don't want to rely just on one revenue stream. You want to diversify the stream of income. You want to have your own personal brand independent of your business brand or your professional brand. But it's what I'm doing and others like also you are doing where people were like, oh, you know, one thing, you know, and then if you look at the people we admire from Oprah to so many, they don't do one mm, thing. True. They are diversified in so many different portfolios, invest in so many different things, and we don't question them. So why do we question people on a local regular level because they're not the Oprahs? So I think march to the beat of your own drum and stay in your lane and then when you do that then you can truly leave out your your intention or leave purposefully the way you were intended to 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 live that's how i see it wow and i just want to add on to that um my last part of that i think it's a part of the puzzle is i also believe in everything you say i actually agree with you on that uh, but I think the, for me to crown it all is that we have to do whatever it is we do, we have to do it in excellence because there's, it's so easy to say, I do this or I do that. But, you know, th there's a lot of half stepping as well in the space. So I think for me, one of my biggest drivers is that, you know, if you're getting into it and this is how we were brought up, if you're getting into it, go big or go home I and mean, just do it, put your back into it. So I think that this is really cool. Now I want to find out from you, Mr. Duak, what or how would you break down or how would you, um, yeah, how would you break down the relationship between music and fashion? Do you think there's an existing relationship? Uh, how it, co it coins coincides and, and how does that work? How does that play? Or how does you how do you how are you able to break that break that down for us? Because this is the topic we are unpacking today. Absolutely. Fashion and music are symbiotic and, and very intertwined. It's like sisters or brothers. I mean, they're relatives. It's like Ghana, Nigeria or Kenya. And I don't know what the neighboring country is that you guys just are very, very close and have a relationship. So you can't have one without the other. 
uh, it goes hand in hand. And I will speak to the African music space. So far, so good. We've not been very good at marrying fashion with music. That is starting to change. And I'm talking about not just having a, a musician just have live performances during our fashion shows mm. but really for our our artists thinking about merch for example mm. merchandising right which spills into fashion and then collaborating with the african fashion designers to build capsule collections or some sort of limited collections that tap into both brand powers we're now seeing that happen slowly but surely we saw orange culture do this recently with david doe i think it was um and we've seen david doe also collaborate on a different scale with I think that's another design and we're starting to see a lot of that blending uh, and then retailing it at Selfridges among all um, among, among other retail brands so on the African continent we're not tuned into that we need to be tuned into that because fashion and music go quite well here in the US I mean we've been doing that for decades now because musicians understand that relationship fashion designers understand that relationship and it's just a natural marriage. And from a fashion perspective, because I hear that music um, sort of um, element and how it actually applies from a musician perspective or from a music brand that's penetrating into fashion when it comes to their collaborations. How about the other way around? Do you find that it is also um, symbiotic enough and it's happening enough in this continent or just generally from a music penetrating into, uh, from a fashion penetrating into music? Fashion penetrating into music, I'm not seeing that either on the continent of Africa. Um, as you know, with Lady Brawl, we were one of the trailblazers of focusing on African fashion. And uh, consistently, both with event production, fashion event production, as well as the designers themselves, it's sort of the last factor anyone really thinks about. Most people focus on the glam of it, mm. producing and putting a collection on the runway. They don't focus on the business side of it, and they don't focus on sort of like like the auxiliary or related or interrelated industries that can help amplify the brand, expand the reach, and, and scale scale it, really. So I don't see that at all, really, on the fashion end. Even till now, a lot of our fashion designers are showcasing at International Fashion Weeks. They are going now, some of them expanding into fashion conferences internationally, some of them prestigious publications, etc. But there's a lot of money to be made at your backyard mm-hmm. by teaming up with people in the music space. So, so start building that relationship and showing them how it can be relevant for both of you to partner and collaborate. So you think that there's a chance for that in Africa and you think that maybe we're just not paying attention to that in the way that we should? Absolutely. There's a huge opportunity. Merchandising, we've not even touched anything on the music to fashion and on the fashion to music side as well. We've not even scratched the surface at all. You can count on your fingers or literally the the amount of fashion design brands across the African continent that have had true uh, meaningful collaborations in the music space in Africa and vice versa as well and it shouldn't be that it should be a lot lot more than what we have right now Mm. I think for me maybe there's also have you thought that maybe it could be a part of also the consumerism in the continent and how you know just the consumer behavior is a bit different and one of the things I know and I have to highlight as a continental child who lives here and who plays here 
is that you know Africans are not necessarily not Afri- not all Africans, but m- many of the consumers here are not necessarily so excited about consuming local still. And I still have to applaud Nigeria out of all the countries in the continent. I have to applaud Nigeria for their patriotism. We were speaking about nativism and homegrown, focus on homegrown um, a few weeks ago. Uh, And one of the things that is the truth is that, you know, we are not, uh, local brands are not necessarily necessarily celebrated as much yet in the continent. It's something, it's a wave that's moving, but it's still, uh, you find that someone will jump on Prada before they jump on even just diasporian brands, even if it's Doru, even if it's um, Oswald, even if it's um, it's very, it's a very different, um, it's a very different uh, flow going on here. Are you aware of that? And if you are, of course, I'm aware of that. It's okay. my job to stay on top of trends. I also spoke um, last year. First of all, I'm aware of it because I'm an African woman and I'm in the diaspora community. I'm immersed in it, and it's an issue that that comes up all the time so it's not even just on the continent the mentality translates also to the diaspora but last year I was also invited to speak uh, at the South Africa Fashion Week um, co- uh, fashion luxury conference of some sorts that was intertwined with the South African tourism government uh, branch and in that process you know that issue came up again number one with the amount of uh, black South African fashion designers and then as a whole just South African fashion designers having true locals having true appreciation for South African local brands it's an issue that was there 12 years ago when I started Lady Burl it's still an issue now it doesn't change and you are right particularly with Ghana and Nigeria in terms of the fashion industry there's a lot more progressive Mm -hmm. by Nigerian by Ghanaian garments and rock Nigerian and and rock, um, you know, Ghanaian uh, designs. In the past, it wasn't that way. If you didn't have a major um, Western brand label, you weren't really in the in crowd. But now it's the flip side, especially for a country like Nigeria. People really love to rock their local fashion. But when we see on the celebrity level, a lot of our celebrities, yeah, occasionally will rock some of our favorite top designers, but the large majority are still rocking designer brands, Western designer brands. So yes, it is a problem. But as to why there's no collaboration, I think there is that part of valuing Western products, colonial men- mentality, mm-hmm. if you will, over local products. But I think independent of that, it's also a lack of education because in the final analysis, as we say here in the US, whether music or fashion, fashion follows the money and so does music. Mm. So if there can be some sort of education and awareness of how you can truly make a lot of money through collaborations and also spread your culture, I think a lot will jump on it. I mean, it would make so sense. Mm. business sense so in let's let's just say in the next five years do you see some more progress in the continent and it's crazy how you say you know since lady brill which you brought back to 12 years ago to now that's one of the issues we still bring up and it's still there what do you sort of where do you see the future of this um mindset because it is a mindset and until we are able to change our mindsets. I don't know what else we can change. And the truth also of the matter is the question about brands. There was a time back in the day, uh, Mr. Duak, where 
there was a question around quality and it's true and I think there's an evolution in everything uh, there was a question about quality and a lot of times people would say okay fine I'm not going to buy that local brand because uh, you know it's quality wise it's not up to my level but today there's no question about quality when it comes to the craftsmanship the workmanship of, of, of the brands in this continent I mean it's the least I mean it's that is not a question so do you think there's going to be a shift in the next five years? Where do you sort of think this is going to go? Do you think there's going to be a shift in mindset? Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, when I first started Africa Music Law, which was, I believe, in 2011. And then, of course, also when I started Lady Brio in 2007, one thing was clear on for both brands. Nobody even believed or, or could foresee that in future Africa fashion would be everywhere what we define as African fashion and for music I remember someone writing an explicit article why Afrobeats music would never be mainstream in Nigeria and I already saw that vision both on late bro and I mean sorry uh, mainstream in the US I already saw that it would be mainstream for both the African fashion part of it, and I'm quoted saying that and had my colleagues quoting um, on the U.S. mainstream fashion end, and same with music. So the mindset has changed. Um, we are now part of the global culture. We're being invited to, to uh, uh, take, a, take a seat at the table, and even when we're not invited, a lot of us are creating our own tables, and it's causing people to come to the continent and say, hey, what is this music about? What is this fashion about? So I think a big part of that is because of the mindset that's already shifting. I anticipate more shifting because technology is disrupting the way we're communicating, the way we're sharing information about our culture, the way we're being proud of who we are. And that's a big part of it. Keyword identity. And because we're starting to, first of all, know our identity. Secondly, redefining and making sure others are not the ones telling our stories mm. I think that we would even see and I anticipate to see more of our cultural pride which then leads to more relationships that we can actually trust each other to do business with each other and um, you know have more of us collaborating where music and fashion can make a lot of money and spread our positive culture globally Echoes from New York on Fashion Lab Africa with Edgy Benson Hi, this is Edgy yeah, so this, listening to this, listening to Miss Woodward, you know, you, you can see the, the relationship between music and fashion. I mean, it, it's just, of course, she dealt with so many levels of it, but you can see that with these industries are so related and so dependent on each other. And so there's actually, there's so much room for each to depend on the other just because they're both artistic and they're both um, they both rely on each other to create scale um, or to add scale um, they both depend on each other to amplify each other you know so I think it's a huge conversation um, there are so many levels of that for me I think it all goes back to our earlier conversation a, a, a couple of a couple of shows ago where we talked about nativism where we say the pillars of that is us celebrating each other, celebrating our world, celebrating our communities. You know, it's, it's a give and take thing where the designers take from the community and the community takes from them. So, and this is what we need to do on the music end to music and mu music and fashion. But we've got to desire that it's got to come from a celebration of us, you know? And once we get that going, 
once we see value in these collaborations, once we see the need, the happiness in these things, then we're going to create an ecosystem that is going to allow us to flourish. You know, that's how I, how I see it. And I think, so we do hold the power to that, you know, and you know, the, the thing about this thing is that because both of these fields are arts, so there's all of these things that are important there, like all the protections, you know, your IPs, your image protections, your trademarks. And once we are able to create this ecosystem, you know, we have people like Misudwak who are in music law, who are going to help us reshape or help us shape our, you know, our, our deliberations in this, in this, in this ecosystem, shape how we travel within our system, you know? And once we're protected, we can go out there and, and rock the wall like we're already doing. We're doing it in a very fairly unprotected way, you know, but, but we are in there. But imagine if we were more coordinated, the impact of that, the force that we would represent. I think for me, the most important the most intriguing part of this relationship between music and fashion is the commercial part of it. How can we depend on each other? How can we scale off each other, right? Um, for fashion, you know, your desire as a, as, a, as a designer, you want your product out there. Um, you know, you, you want publicity. You want, uh, you want to do all the things that bring your product to market in a successful way and one of those things that you need is visibility and one of the easiest ways you can get visibility is sometimes through local musicians that are well known um but it's an art it's a, it's a business it's an it's a business thought and it's how that is executed that you can actually then maximize the impact of that you know so if a good upcoming uh fashion designer can collaborate uh, with good upcoming or established musician uh, you know the the, the 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 impact that would have uh, the emphasis that would have on the work um, of course would be super amplifying super amplifying in the sense that now the musician is being seen from that you know from that from that mirror from that design mirror and then the designer gets seen from that musical mirror too so there's a there's a marriage there where both fans get to relate to each other but it is how we do that to a commercial level how we are able to take that to a point where it's scalable growth that is the real thing are we doing that enough in africa are we being savvy enough to see that opportunity and then tapping into it I think that's a big part of our challenge. So essentially, I think it underscores the need for these collaborations that are just purposeful, I mean, targeted and determined, you know, in a sense where they deliberate, you know, where we have to do that um, from a business point. These things follow the money. I mean, the money is the appeal though. Financial success is the appeal for business, you know. So, if we are able to create these collaborations with designers and fashion in a way that gives perspective, in a way that gives um, uh, relevance to each other, then we can then begin to get commercial success, which will, in a sense, bring in 
people from our side who want to be a part of that success, either it's investors, um, different other stakeholders, even simple things like emerging photographers, modeling agencies, all the ancillary things that fashion needs to succeed and all the ancillary things that music needs to succeed, like big production companies from our side, music producers from our side, um, you know, all of these things. But we've got to be able to create that nerve, that nerve center from where they can feed, you know, and these collaborations are going to be the, the, the way we create that, you know. And Africa is so ready for that because we're just blessed with so much, so much talent across these fields. It's just how we coordinate that talent to this goal that we want to achieve, to this commercial goal that we want to achieve, this ampli amplification goal that we want to achieve. And, you know, in terms of Agoa, right, I do think that it offers us such a huge opportunity. But it's been on for so long, I would never really capitalize on it enough, you know. For me, I, I'm a big gainer from Agoa because my rugs are done in South Africa and they come in as artisan products. They are, they're, they're duty free. And for my clients, it's a huge saving. And just the fact that they come in as artisan, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, that added thing, that added, um, cloud about this, this, this specialty, you know. So we do have that, so we can gain, but it's just for us to really tap into it, you know. Um, it comes with really cool um, benefits for African companies, you know. Everything coming into the U.S. is duty-free. Imagine, imagine that a musician and a fashion designer collaborated on, on, on a product, on a line, and this line is picked up by Macy's. The fact that that line, let's say, is done in Africa and gets to come to the United States, to the Macy's stores, at any volume with no customs. I mean, that's a huge incentive for them to, to shop Africa, you know, to shop African, you know. So, I mean, from a commercial point, Agoa offers us so much. A lot of it, too, is just the education. Do we know about it enough? Are we talking about it? Are we, we, have we educated ourselves enough about it that we can tap into it? You know, we are also actively exploring deeper gains uh, from Agoa, where we looking to move some production, some items to Africa. I think a lot of the problems we have, one of our major holdbacks, is that you know because manufacturing at scale in Africa is not that. It's not that old, not that old. So you still get the issue of not enough checks and balances to ensure that quality is at a premium, you know? So you worry about that. You may be wrong, but of course it's still a worry until our capacity grows and capacity will only grow with practice and more uh, and age in, 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 in the practice, you know? But we are definitely looking to move some, you know, some things to Africa, um, to begin work in Egypt, begin work in Ghana. Um, but Agoa is huge. Agoa is huge. And I think, um, for us to commercialize more effectively, um, what we do in music and what we do in fashion and whatever that marriage is and how that is done, it's important to tap into Agoa and to see what we can do together to take advantage of what it offers.
Hey, thank you for your insights. We really appreciate your input. Um, very well said. Hmm. Let's roll over back to Mr. Duak. Now, let's talk about technology and the digital world and the fact that, you know, we have migrated to the digital. Uh, I'm curious about, obviously, because you deal with um, law on a day-to-day basis around these two really crucial industries. Do you think that the digital world has sort of, um, is there a, a rise when it comes to the issues uh, that, you know, fashion companies or designers or brands are dealing with or music uh, is dealing with on a day-to-day basis? Do you think that that has actually been sort of um, become a bigger thing based on the fact that, you know, technology and the digital world has opened up certain channels that allow... What, what, what's your thoughts around the relationship between the digital world we are living in now and uh, the rise of more and more and more issues. Now you look at, you wake up, you go into Google, you go into BBC, you go into CNN, there's always a, a situation, there's always someone who's getting slapped because, you know, with a lawsuit because of this, there's the protection of the IP and who violated whose and all of that stuff. It's just so much more than ever. Or is it just that, I don't know, maybe I'm just waking up to this. But what is your thoughts around the influence or the impact or the relationship between uh, our lives in the digital world and the, the issues that are coming up more and more um, when it comes to fashion design, when it comes to music and all of the infringement. Yeah, yeah. what I see were well, several things. Number one, in the digital space, the key issue when it comes to fashion particularly, and certainly also uh, with music, is the rise of what we call influential mar- influencer marketing. So basically... Um, tapping into uh, influencer marketing in some form of marketing that focuses on targeting key industry leaders and then using that to drive a brand message and awareness to specific markets. And when we say key industry leaders, it expands to celebrities, it expands to musicians, it expands to fashion uh, designers, among others. So you go on Instagram and before, and it translates actually to fashion weeks as well. Before when I would go to New York Fashion Week, the celebrities were your traditional celebrities as, as you would think of them, actresses, actors, musicians, etc. Last time when I was at Fashion Week, um, that was a couple of years ago, the celebrities were the YouTubers. Mm. They were the ones on the front row. In fact, it was hard to see the general celebrities you would see if you would, like your traditional ones. Mm. So YouTubers have replaced the role that um, your traditional celebrities used to occupy. And that's so interesting and significant because once upon a time, I remember when bloggers could not even get into New York Fashion Week. I used to write for mainstream fashion uh, media companies. And my work was syndicated nationally and internationally. But when I decided to go on Lady Brill, when I started Lady Brill, people were like, uh, what's Lady Brill? Hmm. But because of the relationship as a fashion model as and then as also one who was writing for mainstream, you know, the people who knew, knew me gave me access. Hmm. But it wasn't until much later that bloggers were even allowed. And, and, and then, of course, now YouTubers and now have turned from just vlogging to being celebrities. So that's one thing. Influencer marketing is a big, big one. 
The second one that we're saying is infringement, but copyright infringement, but on the music end, when it comes to streaming of music, downloading of music on the continent side and how that plays into helping either amplify uh, the brand for musicians or undercut their their um their royalties. Some people argue that that helps them with marketing and promotions. Others argue that no, it undercuts, undermines, and it's not right uh, when it comes to artist infringement because you're downloading music and you're not paying for it. So that's one issue that comes up in the music space in terms of digital. And then there's just the, the idea of communication and virality, right? You put something out there from a branding PR perspective, what you put out there can become a major issue where if you're not careful about the words you're putting out there can have a major impact on your brand and the success of your brand. Mm. So um, we're seeing issues that arise on the branding PR side. We're seeing issues that arise on the influencer marketing. We're seeing issues on trademark. We're seeing issues on copyright. And those are the key issues that are affecting uh, the fashion and music industry, respectively. Wow. Now, I just want to um, touch on, you know, we spoke about influencers, we spoke about, so there was a lawsuit a while back. I don't know if you remember this when Chloe put up, uh, Chloe Kardashian put up a, a picture of herself, but it wasn't, she, I don't know who took the picture. Obviously, there was some paparazzi or someone who took the picture. And then she posted it and then they sued her. But it was her picture that they took of her but then because she posted it without maybe the without licensing the image or I don't know what it was but how does that happen that you that you that I find a picture of myself put it up and then I get sued <laughs> I mean like so I want us to the reason I'm asking this is because I want us to I'm going to give you a couple of scenarios because these um I think it's just sometimes easier to break this down and then you know sort of you can help us understand them or understand with the hypotheticals absolutely so what is that what what is that is that is there so the first one that that issue you're talking about is yes part of the influencer marketing with the focus on copyright and in the u.s because a lot of those laws are country specific and sometimes depending on what we're talking about state specific so with the chloe kardashian case and i love talking about this case i'm teaching fashion law now at sacramento state university and it's an introduction of fashion law to to that particular uh, community. And one of the things I've brought up is this case. It's a very interesting case, right? So two rights are involved here. There is the right of the copyright owner. So the photographer who took the picture has a federal copyright in that picture um, that is automatic. Whether if it you, was whether you, whether he took it with your consent or not, it's his copyright, basically. Yes. So she's a celebrity. She's out and about. Yeah. He took a picture. He can do that. There's nothing that precludes it for either news reporting or by virtue of the personality that she is. So he took a picture of her. It's well within his right to have done that. Right. Um, arguably well within his right to have done that. So the picture he took belongs to him under copyright law because he's the creator. And once the under U.S. copyright law, once that uh, picture was taken it's fixed in what we call a tangible medium of expression it's con it's in concrete form so as a result he owns the photo now in the state of california the state of new york and about 13 other states there's what's called the right of publicity liz used, used to be a model so you can appreciate this and
and for a lot of models myself included who have who have ever modeled we are known for right of publicity in the state of california or new york right mm -hmm. and the way that works is you can't use my image as a mm -hmm. model or a celebrity or a regular day person in the state of california for commercial purposes without my consent, consent it, yes. in california in california it extends to name voice likeness etc Mm -hmm. So in this instance, so you now have the photographer claiming, hey, I got a right, a federal right to the work that I created, which is the photo, mm -hmm. my copy, right. And then you've got Chloe that says, yeah, but what about my right as not to have my privacy violated, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So that right of publicity, you can't use my work for, you can't use my image without my consent. The only thing here is that right does not uh, trump the um, federal copyright. And in addition, you can't necessarily say right of privacy when you're dealing with celebrities hmm. because you are a celebrity, so you are <laughs> technically a public figure. So it makes it a challenge to make that argument that because I'm a, I'm a public figure, I'm out and about, and with public figure, I'm taking a photo that's newsworthy about you, which fits into the exceptions of... of of copyright use and just in general also me just taking a picture of you as a celebrity as a photographer you can't say oh you know my right of privacy has been violated in that sense so it's been a very interesting tension between that the copyright and right of publicity law and it's going to be i'm very interested in seeing the kind of argument that comes out of that in order to try to uh, figure out a solution because I do think it's inherently unfair mm. that you can have I, I happen to believe that that I can't post a picture saying hey here I am as a model and this person took a picture of me although I think in this instance there was no attribution but even if there's attribution I can't say you took a picture of me but then you can say, well, take my photo down, otherwise I'll sue you. Mm -hmm. Now, what I would say is in that instance, you can counter sue saying, yeah, you may have taken a picture of me, but my right of publicity, if you're not a public figure in that sense, right? If you fall into other exceptions or your model or whatever, maybe that would be a different kind of situation. Um, but the celebrity uh, right of publicity and copyright issue is a very, very interesting one. But that's what's at play. It so, sounds so complicated and it's it's so, it's just, it's also not, doesn't feel good for, you know, the celebrity. The celebrity is still a person, you know, and it's still, you know, I just find it's such a very complicated, it's such a, com it's so complicated. So there's no resolution to it. Is that how it's going to be? That yes, the guy owns the copyright and yes, she needs to put it down or she can't put it up because of that. But like what? She needs to get permission the... to use it. Okay, cool. So if she has, if she's able to get permission or get, or give credits, if she gives credits, is that permission or there's, she still needs a different type of permission? Permission is a license. Oh, she needs Lord. to have a license to pay for, for the photo. But he can also say, you don't have to pay me. You can just credit me. So okay. he can do that too. Okay. They just have to have a conversation, I guess. All yeah. right. So I want to give you another scenario in music. Um, someone says, I just recorded with Kunle and I just have heard the track playing on radio. And it's happened a lot. And I think for me, this uh, these scenarios are great because I can relate to all of these scenarios. 
how do you manage or how do you deal with a situation like this? Another thing is, I know that you've mentioned, and for those who are tuned in as well, I'm sure you can hear that, you know, there is obviously different regions have different laws that govern the regions based on, I mean, region. So you can still talk music, but I guess the music law and how it applies in New York may not be the same as how it applies in Tokyo or maybe Nairobi. Is there a global rule when it comes to dealing with some of the scenarios? Or is it based on each region, based on the law system within that region? So when it comes to copyright law, each country has their own copyright law. However, there is an international treaty and several international treaties, one of, one of which is the Berne Convention that says that, you know what, a country, let's say Kenya and Nigeria and the U.S., we want our creatives to be able to do business with each other. We want to respect your country's um, copyright laws and we want you to respect the copyright laws and copyrights of our citizens. So we're gonna have reciprocity. And with the reciprocity, it will allow those who are signed uh, to be part of that treaty for their copyrights to be respected and give them certain rights where, let's say I'm here in the U.S. and you're in Nigeria infringing on my copyright. Mm -hmm. Depending on how that works, where, so, for example, the copyright is infringed online, I can easily sue you here without having to be in your country because you are violating my copyright. Uh, um, intellectual property, my specific copyright. So, but to answer your specific question, copyright law is uh, country specific. Trademark law is country specific, but there are certain treaties, especially on the copyright end, that allows that reciprocity of respect of copyright laws of each each um, diverse countries towards each other. So let's just say, for example, um, I've just recorded a track with somebody, with an artist's collaboration, and I, I know that collaborations are the ones that go wrong the most out of what I know, my, based on experience and based on how we play here. What happens when you just now hear the track playing on radio? Maybe you've got the same publishing company. I don't know. Maybe you don't. So I know that, for example, I'm with Sony Publishing. Uh, maybe this person is based in Ghana or based in maybe Cote d'Ivoire. He's also with Sony Publishing, or maybe he's with a different publishing. How do you deal with something like this, where you record a track and then there's no communication, next thing it's playing and it's up and it's going? Okay, let me be sure what you're asking. So Liz, the musician, hangs out with, let's say, I don't know, let's say Casper. And then they both record a track mm -hmm. and that track is now being played locally in South Africa or being played, let's say, in uh, Kenya. So the question is, I didn't give consent for Casper to play the music mm -hmm. or, or, or am I right yes, so far right. so good? Yes, you are. I did not give Casper the consent to play the music and therefore he can't take that uh, that that music and give it to uh, let's say a disc jockey or radio station to play it. Is that is that what yes. you're saying? Yes. Or just distribute okay. it because you know people do that. Or yes. distribute. Yeah, absolutely. So if Liz and I, this is South. I've looked at South African laws very similar. Mm -hmm. I've not really looked. At, I've looked a, a little bit of Kenyan law. It is similar. Mm -hmm. Nigerian law is definitely similar, and so is the U.S. law on this copyright issue. So the way that works is Liz and Casper are joint authors of the work, mm -hmm. right? So they've both created the work, they both own it. In the US, you would own that work equally. Yes, even so, here. 
yeah, so I don't need your permission. I'm Casper. I don't need Liz's permission to distribute that music, to play that music. And a lot of the laws are consistent on uh, radio networks, etc. What I do need your permission for is the compensation part. I mean, well, not permission. What I do need is when the revenues come mm-hmm. from payment of that, then I must split it with you, provide an accounting and split that income with you. So the fact because that you haven't had joint authors, you've both created it and you yourself, Liz, can do the same. You don't need to check in every time with with Casper. Now, I will say a caveat. There's some people that have an issue with maybe the kind of music you affiliate, the kind of brand you affiliate with. There's a whole thing about Trump or whatever. We're not going to make this political at all. Mm-hmm. But let's say you don't like Trump for whatever reason, Casper, you're like, you just absolutely hate Trump. And so you hear that that music is now being played at one of Trump's rally or as part of his whole election cycle thing, right? Mm-hmm. And you never agreed with Liz on that. I mean, technically, I guess you could you could say, no, I don't want it played and, you know, take it down, all that stuff. But if Liz wants it, then you got to sort that out with her, you know, and figure that out because she has a right to also affiliate that music with whatever brand she wants to. That's part of what that joint authorship is, which is why it's so important for you to have a joint author agreement that delineates the rights mm-hmm. of each person, delineates a percentage, delineates how you all will be paid, when you all will be paid, and, and just like the terms of your relationship and the agreement is spelled out carefully. Wow. I want to move into a fashion com- a fashion scenario. Um, let's just give the example of, I'm from the Maasai culture. I've watched Brand A debut their latest collection without recognition of association. And this is my IP, which is the Maasai blanket. How do you deal with a situation like this? As the... Bra- as the, know, yeah, as so the country or... As a community. So maybe I could be the representative of the Maasai culture. And then mm-hmm. you've got Barbary who just came down did a few little things, sourced some stuff, had a great photo shoot um, in Maasai land. Next thing, we're looking down their runway and there they are with the Maasai blanket and that's their spring yeah. summer. Who's seen those, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that, that takes us to the question of culture or pur- cultural appropriation mm-hmm. and depending, <laughs> and we've also, yeah, cultural appropriation and then there's also the question of what each country is doing to protect its own mm-hmm. copyrighted works in their traditional folklore or traditional cultural related designs and fabric designs of that nature. So I think you go to your, your federal government and you say, hey, there's an appropriation of our culture by XYZ here. And I know that Ethiopia had a similar situation happen. I think it was with Mark Bauer way, way back in maybe 2009 or 10. I just remember the Ethiopian government going after him and either threatening to sue or sue. <laughs> so something like that can happen. And then the designer just gets into a settlement agreement of some sorts or write it out in court. But uh, it, it would be for the protectors, the gatekeepers of that culture um, to stand up and fight for that designer or well, that dis- that community, because that community has created its own designs and put it on a blanket. And you now have someone coming saying African inspired and on the runway is the exact same mm-hmm. uh, fabric prints. <laughs> on their own uh, the fabric prints walking down the runway with the whole collection that looks just like it was stripped from the Ma- Maasai people. 
<laughs> and they're making a lot of money off of it. So it's the government, the government steps in and says, hey, you can't do that kind of cultural appropriation. And beyond that, it's an infringement of, of, of our, our citizens' copyrights, and we're entitled to be compensated for that as well. Yeah, and you Watch know what? TV. Yes, I thank you, for, thank you for that because it's it's good to. Um Gosh, it's just so many. There's just so many issues that people don't realize from a legal um, standpoint that we actually this is where we actually need that um, legal advice. And this is why we have to invest or we have to be conscious about uh, everything from a legal um, perspective as well, whether you have a team or you have a lawyer or you have a, whoever you have for legal advice. But I have to be I'm very disappointed in the government systems because yes they are the they're supposed to be the boat the they're supposed to probably if the maasai culture doesn't set up a body i'm assuming or a coalition or something there's got to be some sort of uh higher authority and um from the from the government that can be able to help the communities that are you know that are sort of getting played or getting screwed over but I find that that doesn't happen. It's not the case. And, and then what happens is sometimes you have some of these cultures where there's a lot of um, illiteracy, maybe like, and I know with the Maasai, and this is not knocking them off, they need help and they are a culture. And we all know the Maasai. I mean, if people don't know anything about Kenya, I'm sure they know who the Maasai people are. And I just find that even the government have not done, they definitely have not done the best they could to be able to help uh, be the next sort of step when you have issues like this. And that's why, you know, that's why our IP is at stake. But anyway, I want to move on, um, uh, Mr. Duak. I, re- I think this is really great. For those who are tuned in, I hope that you're getting something out of this, however way, whether it's for your fashion brand or your fashion company or just information that you're sort of overloading that you didn't really know about that could probably help add value to you one way or another. I'm just curious about your take on uh, the current situation in uh, African fashion generally. I know that Africa is on the spotlight right now. I think Africa has always been on fire, but more than ever, it's definitely on the spotlight. Where do you see the future of, of African fashion? Well, let me start with that question of cultural appropriation. Um, We have to do better in terms of our government stepping in and taking fashion more as a business than just culture. Because for a long time, African have considered fashion as more of a cultural expression and cultural experience. I'm from a family on the maternal side of um, fashion industry people, if you will, my um, My maternal grandfather was a clothing designer and I have cousins and relatives who are uh, other relatives who are uh, in the fashion business in Nigeria. So uh, we have to take it very seriously from a standpoint of fashion is not just to be enjoyed and to show off and who looks better at what event. It is a business. That's the first thing first. And when we approach it from that standpoint, then we start really protecting our creativity and our government can also allow that protection from a cultural appropriation standpoint. And then from a business side as fashion designers and fashion industry professionals across the spectrum, because we focus so much on designers but we forget the raw manufacturers Mm. all the way from the agricultural process Mm. down the line to the retail and every person along that value chain 
they deserve to have their uh, products seen or their services uh, utilized in the best way that they present, present it and to have uh, appropriate product, um, protections. So there are two things we need to focus on anytime we're talking about fashion or the creative business. We have to focus first on the business side of things, which requires awareness, education, and not just one person doing it. Because in Africa, it tends to be just one person. So in uh, South Africa, you've got um, someone who was a recent Lady Bro Woman of the Month. Why am I forgetting her? Uh, producer of South Africa Fashion Week. She's Lucilla, been doing it by herself. Mm, Lucila Poison. Mm-hmm. She's been doing it all by herself for so long. Hats off to her. Mm-hmm. And then this, uh, the Africa Fashion International Precious, Dr. Precious Moloy Matsepe, that's great as well. But really, at the end of the day, it's almost like two different entities doing things. Then when you come to Nigeria, uh, where my heritage is, my her- uh, where I'm from and my heritage, um, you have a situation where you have Omoyele, Akirile, and then there's the other guy, uh, forget his name, who's been doing it even much longer with the Nigerian fashion show. Alexi Mojo Eyes. Mm. And so, again, it's always it's always somehow individuals. And then in Ghana, Glitz um, Fashion Awards, and I think they put on uh, Glitz Ghana Fashion Week as well. There needs to be some sort of collaboration. Mm. Not to me, everybody's sort of working differently. There needs to be synergy. Mm. And then there needs to be true training on the business of fashion. What it takes to build a brand and scale the brand and remain sustainable in the business of fashion. So independent of that, then there needs to be a growing awareness, a studying slowly but surely of the legal ramifications of uh, IP protection in the fashion space. It's really tough. Um, South Africa is a little farther ahead Mm -hmm. where you can actually find fashion lawyers. Nigeria, there is at least one person, she's a mentee of mine who's starting to do fashion law and getting into it as well what's very funny i always laugh is that when i said africa music law i actually bought the url also for africa fashion law but music law got so busy for me that i let go of africa fashion law and it's such a delight to see what she's been able to now do with africa fashion law hmm. uh, url <laughs> it was so coincidental when she contacted me and said hey i'm doing african fashion law. i said you gotta be kidding me here are my here are my previous posts i sent her some links to my previous post and told her about that story as well but we need more awareness around fashion law as well yes and kenya has is just one of the most progressive when it comes to in my view intellectual property rights Mm -hmm. i really like the way the copyright law is written the trademark laws how active Mm -hmm. the copyright board is among other things they really are progressive um, and and it's just really awareness. A lot of our industry professionals are not aware. The trademark is a big thing in fashion, not copyright. Mm-hmm. More trademarks, copyright is for the photographers. Mm-hmm. But even for our design brands, no one is really trademarking their names, uh, their design brand names. They're not building true brand equity. They can't really scale their business. At some point with Lady Bro, it started to get very, very, very frustrating because I would have all this um, great designers because people didn't think that you could have contemporary, amazing designers out of Africa. So I'll showcase them, but my women never, and just my audience in general, never knew where to go shop for them. And then for those who were able to sort of do something, being able to meet de- demand 
was just an issue. Supply chain logistics, shipping and handling, it just was not there at all. That at this point, I had to shift and say, you know what, even when I look at the metrics on the back end, a lot of my women are coming, and I say women because, you know, it's uh, very focused on women, but a lot of my demographic are based in the U.S. I don't want to waste my time if you're not able to, as an African design brand, and waste their time if you can't deliver. What's the point of showcasing all of these designs and, and they can't have access to purchase it? Makes no sense. Mm-hmm. So if you notice, while others may be still doing, um, hey, African fashion and all, all that, <laughs> I Generally, make that our brand avoids that and we focus more on business of fashion yes. and then celebrating women's business and leadership because it just makes no sense. True. You can't deliver the product. They can't go to the store to get it. If they do go to the store, it's a Western designer who's African inspired having yes. their their the design and the, and the products in the store. So what's the point? You know, uh, instead, let me focus on building designers and giving them a platform and, 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 and doing more of the business of fashion. And that's where our focus is at this point, because we just couldn't see where we could send people to have uh, purchased the products. And I will say you had a few retail uh, organization. I mean, a few retailers that have come online retailers to try to sell uh, African design products, but Mm-hmm. A few years later, they're out of business mm-hmm. or they're just not able to scale to, to, to handle the demand. So I always like to relate the topic that the show is discussing and apply it to the beauty segment. Because as we've seen over these last few weeks, the fashion and beauty industry are starting to work, have always worked hand in hand. We are at a time when fashion and beauty have basically merged together to become this powerful yin and yang to each other. That's what I seem to be enjoy watching the beauty industry grow so exponentially alongside fashion. Women apply makeup every single day for so many different reasons and in so many different ways. Your style is a visual manifestation of where you stand, colored by history, culture, emotions and your political stand. It can also be an attempt to create a state where the gap between one's body and oneself meet. If you take JLo for example, last week she freaking rocked a version of that iconic green Versace dress for Milan Fashion Week. I mean she's 50. She looks incredible. She is telling the world I am 50. Who says you've got to slow down at 50? She is a music icon that became a fashion icon and is now a beauty icon. Talk about a 360 degree circle. She recently had a makeup collaboration with Inglot. The colors were exactly shades that she would usually wear. Very elegant, warm shades of brown. More matte with just a hint of sparkle. Easily blendable. The highlighter was one of the shiniest sunset golden colors I have ever used. The lashes were the most disappointing part of that range, but the glitters were incredible. Overall, I loved the range, especially to create the smoky, sultry, J-Lo signature look. The line was well thought through and you can see JLo really used her knowledge from all these years which she gathered working with such incredible makeup artists like Pat McGrath. In an interview when she was asked why she created a makeup line, she said, I don't like makeup that feels like a mask. I find Instagram interesting, but it doesn't look real. Real women don't look like that. Her message has always been to love yourself the way you are. And that's why she did the beauty line. It's about minor adjustments or frosting as I would like to call it. Makeup is a form of self-expression. 
I use makeup on myself as a way of giving myself a confidence boost. Experimenting with makeup and clothing shows that you are not afraid to be yourself and it can help someone else portray their personality, create their individuality and develop confidence without having to be vocal at it. So these are my top three tips at owning your glam look. Be confident in what makes you feel best. Number two, any body type can rock anything. Sometimes it isn't about conforming but creating. As we've seen even from Billie Eilish, I mean her style is so out there, it's so unique and it's so different but it makes her even more interesting. And thirdly, in the famous Mama Rose words, if you can't love yourself, how the hell are you going to love anybody else? Can I get an amen? So this is your girl, Zakia Bam. Keep it glam. Until next week, love and light. Bye. Thank you, Zakia, for your feedback. And thank you for bringing Glamish to life. Today has really been one of my fun Glamish um, segments. And um, I think the uh, epitome of this segment today is beauty from the inside out. I think that's what I really felt. Anyway, let's roll over back to Miss Oduak. You know, um, um, Mr. Duak, as we are talking, I think, and I really love this conversation because of the fact that we are definitely focused and we have to focus. If we don't focus on the business side of our business, what good is a business if it doesn't make business sense, you know? And I tell you for sure, again, one of the biggest challenges that if I had to, if I would be able to have, you know, like a crowdsource, like a crowdfunding, is it called crowdsource funding or what is it called? You know, yeah, like, crowdfunding. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. Where you get people and you... So if I had... If I could do it, I would do it. What I would do is pull out all of the most brilliant diasporians, okay? Africans, some in Africa, some within the world, and then pull them together. And then what we would do is look and say, okay, fine. Uh, we want to push music. We want to push fashion. We know these are very two big, very big industries. And like I said, there used to be, uh, there has been an evolution both in fashion and in music. Um, and I think for me, I see it even more, more prominent in fashion. The biggest, biggest, biggest hurdle here is logistics. So, a brand or a shop orders. This is what they want. Uh, Liz puts her things together. Okay, fantastic, because there's no question. I've got stock. I've got this. I've got that. Everything's everything's ready. Everything's good. Import, export, codes. Everything is good. Business, we have put and shaped our businesses as we evolve. Wait until you look at your shipping and handling. From a, from a, from a financial perspective, it is not sustainable. Now, unless you're... Unless you're I don't know. So tell me something. I want to find out from you because for me, my biggest thing right now is for anybody who's looking at private investment, especially in the fashion industry, who cares about African fashion in the continent and want to help push it to the globe. I think that logistics would be, when it comes to shipping and handling, would be one of the biggest places to focus on because it is the hardest and it's the most expensive and it's the most complicated, I think. Absolutely. And then another thing I want to find out from you, do you know anything about Agoa? About Agoa? Oh, yeah. I think Lady Bro has written extensive articles over the years about Agoa. And I think it continues to... When it first started, actually, I'd had an interview. I particularly conducted an an exclusive interview with um, the uh, Agoa executive at the time, top executive, dealing with what that meant for African nations. Mm -hmm. And do you find that now they are more instrumental because... 
I've been looking at, I've looked at a Goa, I've looked at a couple of other places, as in my capacity as a brand who also wants to move out. I mean, who, who also wants to push out. But for me, what I find when I look around is it's actually, it is unfortunate that, you know, not everybody can wake up and say, okay, fine, I can afford it. Let me just ship this stuff. Let me ship it to shop A, shop B, shop C. On the flip side, putting harder terms and conditions for the stores is just basically um, going to get your brand left on the corner because there's a thousand other brands that want to be in. So if you want to sit down and say one of the things I used to do, I had two big shops in Amsterdam who used to stock my stuff and I gave them terms on my terms. And my terms were, I'm not going to be involved with shipping and handling, but here's the order. And they ordered and they handled everything. But then it got to a point where they felt like they were over flooded with other African brands and they could find what it was. It may not have been Lee's, but then I got cut out. But then I got cut out mm. because... Not because I wasn't trying to be progressive and to be present and to be there, but to get the brand visible there and and sell. It's because my terms expired. And, you know, so when you think and you sit in the corner and you say you can't afford it, there's two or three other brands or ten other brands who are dying to get in there. And so I find for me that the biggest challenge is has been logistics. And I feel like if the more we could be able to find ways, especially from a private investment perspective, to get investors who are interested in fashion to understand that this is a part that they should really focus on, this is a really big hurdle, then I think we could move, we could definitely move 10 steps ahead. Because there are brands that are sitting ready. They just don't have the financial capacity to keep sending. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Well, let me address the Agora thing very briefly to say, first, Agora is the African Growth and Opportunity Act. And um, I believe that was implemented during the uh, Bush administration, President Bush administration, and then has been renewed over the years, including during the Obama administration. And essentially what it does is it's a trade preference program that provides duty free access to the U.S. market for substantially all products that are exported from at the time, it was over 39 eligible countries in sub-Saharan Africa. Mm-hmm. And part of that is what you're talking about when it, when it comes to the supply chain logistics. You, if you're exporting duty-free to the U.S., you don't have to deal with a lot of those, a lot of those expenses that come yeah. with if you just did it the other way around. But I think the key thing, and I remember when I had the um, interview with the U.S. trade official, the key thing was just getting that information out and then working with appropriate offices or implementing a goal because they have a lot of information mm. and they break it down and they have agents that work closely with you and constituents that work closely with you to make sure all of the stuff is done correctly, all of it is streamlined and your product can get market here if that's what you want it to But a lot of the times we don't information or know it to go even if we're aware of it so as a result you have a situation where one like you is ready to go or can demands unfortunately because of a breakdown in some sort of communication and sort of making sure that pipeline is very very clear in terms of pathway to um making agora work for you and process you get left behind mm-hmm. i think all designers listening and just anyone doing business in, in African space, particularly because it's not just uh, tech, I think it covers all a vast majority of, of products 
Yes. So it's not just only styles. So I think that the key thing is to get in touch with even in the in country, your respective country, even just go to the U.S. Embassy and ask them about the AGOR Act and then and take advantage by them linking you up with the representatives who help you handle that part and then following up with every single thing that they want you to the requirements in order for you to be able to meet that requirement and be able to uh, get your products exported to um, the US and the retailers that are interested in carrying your product. Don't forget online as well. Online is so, so important as well. So keep that in mind. Thank you so much. And I think that's very, yes, thank you. That's very powerful. And I think uh, one of the things I always say is information. Knowledge is power. So you know, for those who are tuned in again, you know, this is that show where we sort of unpack these conversations and then you can decide to do whatever you want to do with this information. But at least the one thing we know is we are sharing it, we are releasing it. And then you can decide to see if it applies or how you can deal with it or how you can take it in and how you can apply it to your situation. But anyway, wow, this is very informative. And Liz, thank you. let me just add something. Um, there is the African, I don't know, it's been a while, but... I remember that they used to have the africantradehubs.org, africantradehubs.org. And what it is, is part of, it's like the U.S. Agency for International Development. And they've got like four regional or maybe more now at this point, trade competitiveness hubs. I know they had used to have them in Ghana, Senegal, Botswana, and even Kenya. And each of them have an agora advisor mm. and a trade specialist. That's going to help you if you're an eligible African country, increase your exports under AGOA. Wow. So go to the africatradehubs.org. And if not, just Google and search what the latest thing yes. is now for yeah. them. I can, or I can US see they're agency. actually on USAID, but I think it's the same thing. Maybe they've just... Moved. Exactly. So U.S. Agency for International Development. And look at the four regional trade competitiveness hubs they have. They might have expanded to more than that, but for yes. Kenya, for sure, they have it. Yes, even here. And then, and then find uh, South Africa as well, okay? And then go to them and say, hey, who's your AGOA advisor or other trade specialist? How can you help me? I've got the, I've got the audience. I can, I can produce at scale. I can meet the demands. Can you help me? with how this process should work so I can take advantage of Agoa and get my products into retail stores or wherever it is you're trying to get your product in the U.S. And they will be willing to help you with a lot of information and walk you through that process. So take advantage of it. Thank you very much. Wow. I think for me, uh, what I'd love to do is I really appreciate your time, Ms. Udwak. We've... Um touched on so many different angles of it but the one thing I love is the fact that we are very enthusiastic and we are we are we are expectant <laughs> for this industry to rise because it will and uh, I thank uh, I thank uh, the rest of our contributors who've been able to share with us uh, their insights as well Ms. Udwak how can our listeners connect with you if they need to uh, find you can you share with us your social media or website or social media handles please yeah so on all platforms is Miss Uduak, so M-S-U-D-U-A-K, M-S-U-D-U-A-K. And then you can just go to my central hub for my brand, uh, MissUduak.com. That's M-S-U-D-U-A-K.com. And when you get there, you'll see the diverse things that I do and can easily uh, click to the ones that interest you, whether it's journalism, law, uh, speaking or speaking engagements. You'd like me to come speak at your event or, you know, the publishing aspect. Either way, you can find it on MissUduak.com. 
Congratulations again on all you are doing. You are amazing, and it's true that you really are amazing. And um, I think I'm just proud. Association-wise, we are like, yep, we are hanging out. Yep, those are the people that we actually uh, hang out with on the show. One more thing. Where do you see the future of African fashion, and where do you see the future of the music, uh, the African music industry? Hmm, good question. So let's start with African fashion. I think that the world is paying more and more, more and more attention to African fashion. I think we're starting to talk the business of fashion, but I think we still have a long way to go with proper rec- recognition and respect for our local designers. I think the future of African fashion is going to be fashion education, fashion awareness, and um, I'd like to see banks believe more in African fashion industry mm-hmm. and from a standpoint of not having this big events that I see in Nigeria a few other African nations where they bring every major western top name possible from designer to other industry professional spend way too much money than they need to all in an attempt to just have them speak. I don't think that makes sense. I think if you're going to bring people like that, then actually have workshops and pass on knowledge and educate and teach people, um, use these folks to, to really teach your local markets how to build a fashion brand, how to scale it, how to deal with import-export issues, distribution issues, all kinds of stuff that are that designers and the design community face. So that's what I would see. It's education, it's more business awareness, and it's more uh, understanding of legal protections. That's what I see for the future. On the music side, it's very, very interesting. I think that there will be, we're hearing about streaming and streaming is growing in the US. It's certainly also growing on, uh, on the continent. And it's also technology at large has helped us leapfrog from Uh, an industry that really wasn't recognized to being able to really compete and get on the global music map. But my concern for the music industry in Africa as a whole is the role of African stakeholders in being able to be part of having a piece of the pie. I don't think we're strategically positioned in a way that we can have a piece of the pie. I think we're still so excited that the West is paying attention to us that we're not brokering deals that can truly um, help the industry to be sustainable Mm. and uh, respect our music ecosystem. It's my view, just from what I'm seeing. I think a few artists are understanding that. Uh, Davido had to go back and rework his his deal. Burner Boy seems to get it Mm -hmm. uh, with how he wants to present his brand globally and also the business side of things. But I think industry professionals at large right so african industry professionals i'll be even more specific black african industry professionals across the continent need to be working with each other need to understand they're all in it together and say how do we build our own like um uh what's his name uh mr easy is doing how do we build our own uh streaming distribution Mm -hmm. platform Mm -hmm. Why must it only be Jay-Z that has his own uh, streaming platform title or Universal or Sony? Build our own, empower, mm-hmm. work with these other brands and have our catalog and content from all of our talents 
on the continent and let people come to us instead to want to have their music on our platform to to want to stream to our people and then we're making money off of that just like they would be doing if we were putting our content on their platform so it's really really all working hand in hand just like jay-z did with all those different artists as investors to back up title if Davido came together with Whiskid and Casper and the rest of them, AKA, I know there've been all the spats and terrible situations given the recent situation in South Africa with all these different talents, you know, spatting and, and upset about each other. But if we have a united front and all come together and say, we can build an extremely powerful distribution platform, distribution platform, streaming amazing te- music, mm-hmm. we can compete. We don't have to be individually going to every other place begging to be a part of, of their thing and not even having enough percentage in terms of royalties coming to us. So let's work collectively. I think if we do that, we'll be good. I think if we don't do that, it would be the same old story where you hear about African talents or, or just Africans having this richness, this culture, this creativity. But the West comes in and is able to monetize and make a lot of money off our IP it used to be oil, but now it'll be our IP, and it would, the story won't be any different. Mm-hmm. Wow, thank you so much, Mr. Duak. Wow, guys, you are tuned into Fashion Lab. This is the show that dissects the business behind fashion. Like We've been dissecting it all evening long and uh, it's been a pleasure um now Ms. Duak, we have something called uh fashion lab top three i normally just come up with different sort of key things that i think i know you've spoken about a few key things there are actually so many that like <laughs> i need to be able to pull out the top three which would be our guiding tips moving forward we call it the fashion lab top three so specifically for today's topic i would like you to share your top three I've got a lot my, of them, but you can just highlight three highlights for 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 today's topic. Meaning, whatever tips or whatever, just your top three. Okay. Yes. Got it. Got yes. it. Top three: know who you are, love and know your identity as an African. Be proud of who you are. It will inform every decision you make and every move. Number two, learn about the business of the creative industry you're in. So ensure that you understand the business of fashion, the business of music, the business of art, whatever the creative industry is, make sure you understand it. So now that you've got your identity, you know who you are, what you're about, who, and also secondly, you understand the business. Now get some of your key stakeholders that will help protect you, which are the lawyers. Lawyers and the creative industry go hand in hand. Sort of like I was saying, fashion and music. You cannot be in the business of music without having lawyers, period. It's all copyright law and you're all assigning or licensing your copyright, period. And, and lawyers are trained to do that. In the same way, too, when it comes to uh, fashion, you can't truly scale and be successful as a fashion business owner without having your lawyers in place. So make sure you have that identity, business and law. Those are the three highlights. Cool. Very, very cool. Thank you so much. Uh, One more thing. Now we've got this segment called Who Would You Want to Dress and Why? Who would you want to dress? <laughs> Today I would like to dress Diana Ross. Um, she is 75 years old and she hasn't slowed down at all. 
Um, I love her outfits. I love her style. They are always extremely bold and sassy. I mean, she's a music and a style icon on all levels. Um, I love her daughter Tracy Ellis Ross that uses that exact style in her style now. Um, it's incredible. So that's who I would like. I would want to dress today. <laughs> who do I want to dress? My family. Um, I have gone to fashion school, independent of being uh, doing law school and all that. And I only had one class left, which was a sewing class. And uh, my sister gifted me a sewing machine uh, a few years ago for my birthday. I'm going to sew no matter what. Wow. And when I do, I want, because I have to carry on the tradition and it's in me as well. So I can't let my cousins be the only one uh, <laughs> doing fashion. It's, it's part of me. My mom says um, on my father's side is law. On my mom's side is the fashion, music, education. She's like, I, I got both from, you know, I'm the child. So I love, love fashion. I dream in colors and I want to be able to also design and I would love to just design exclusively for my family. We're all tall people. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to design for my family and that's who I'd like to dress. Wow. Thank you so much. Well, uh, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Ms. Uduak, I want to wish you all the best uh, as you continue to grow and to um Soar like an eagle into higher heights because I see that's what you're doing. <laughs> and for those who are tuned in, um, I guess we will be talking again. Uh, if you have any uh, inquiries that you'd like to share, you can reach out to us on info at fashionlabafrica.com and you can find us and plug in. If you caught this um, show halfway, you haven't missed a thing, uh, you can actually find us on fashionlabafrica.com. Otherwise, it is peace and love until next week. It's toodles. <laughs> fashion Lab Africa. Real conversations, real fashion.